Welcome to TEH, the Tech Enthusiast Hour podcast, where several hosts talk about what they find interesting in tech this week. The show notes for this episode are at tehpodcast.com slash teh73. We've got a full complement of four hosts this week. I'm Leo Notenboom, the Leo behind askleo.com, lover of corgis, coffee, computers, and tonight powered by a little bit of coffee-flavored vodka. Nice. I'm Kevin Savitz. I am creator of freeprintable.net and faxzero.com, which are these little websites you can use to do useful things. I'm Gary Rosenzweig, the host and producer at macmost.com, and I make mobile apps too at clevermedia.com. And I'm Randy Cassingham, founder of thisistrue.com, which today finished its 25th year of weekly email newsletters and the offline online viral getoutofhellfree.com with well over 2 million cards out in the wild and powered this week by espresso flavored vodka. I've got, nobody told me that it was vodka night. I'm not prepared for this. Come on, these are assumptions you should just be making. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Randy, congratulations, first of all. 25 years, holy crap. Yes, indeed. I, it's crazy. I couldn't, you know, if, if you told me 25 years ago, you'd still be doing this in 25 years, I would have said, will I still like it? <laughs> <laughs> and the answer is yes. I'm still having a great time. So That's very cool. What, what is, besides the fact that you've lasted for 25 years doing this newsletter, what has surprised you? the most about it uh that i do still like it and i still have things you know different things new things to say um you know it's it's basically a a social commentary you know human condition uh, commentary kind of column uh and you'd think you know with weird news being your um, your vehicle to make that kind of commentary that you would have seen it all by now, but you know, there's still some new stuff out there and new things I want to say. So I'm having a blast. Do, do you think that in that time, I mean, it's, it's a long time, so I know what the answer is going to be, but do, do you think that your opinions, your philosophy of things have changed significantly in that time? I mean, are you writing things now that you might have disagreed with 25 years ago? I don't think so. Um, obviously, my my points have sharpened and matured, but it's always been about people need to think more and not be so dumb in the spur of the moment. Uh, and there's certainly examples of that every week. <laughs> but I, I think the bottom line is is pretty much the same for me. I mean, I, I wasn't sure exactly what my overall point was at the very beginning, but it came into focus pretty quickly, mm-hmm. thinking. So I mentioned, or I, I read one of your items not that long ago, where you talked about how it would seem that one could come, one could become really cynical and perhaps even depressed about the state of humanity over the course of doing something like this for as long as you have. But apparently that's not the case. That's not the case. I actually wrote about that uh, a year or two ago and, and recently uh, posted that link on Facebook, and that's maybe where you picked it up again. Um, yeah, I'm actually more optimistic about humanity because I'm not the only one out there saying, dang, this needs to happen more. People need to think. In fact, I got a newsletter this morning from another email publisher that was just railing about how we need to think more. Leo? (laughs) (laughs) Gee, I wonder whose newsletter that could have been. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, it's funny because I was actually rereading that article before it went out. And um, I was actually quite pleased with, with, the, with the message and the tone. So thanks for mentioning it. Yes, of course, we'll have links to it. Yep. Cool. All right. Okay. So I think Gary's up first. Well, I think uh, we, uh, Kevin had some things. Oh, that he actually, no, Leo. Oh, that's was, right. No, I was pretty sure Randy was going first. <laughs> oh, yeah. I remember now. We have to do what we've been up to. All right. I'll go first. Um, <laughs> The reason I've been not here a lot lately is um, I am getting back into the public speaking circuit. And uh, so I've been taking some classes and doing some online stuff, flying out to LA a bunch of times, 
and uh, writing a speech that I'm giving next month at the Mensa annual gathering, which is their national convention. And it happens to be <coughs> in Phoenix in July, but uh, <laughs> I'm sure they'll have air conditioning. Yeah. They're going to have air conditioning and I'm going to be using it amply. They call themselves smart. <laughs> <laughs> That's why they're going to be indoors and you know, <laughs> they don't go outdoors anyway. So what the heck? So, Randy, I, I made the comment on, I think it was actually one of Kit's posts, your wife, who's also speaking at this conference, that um, um, asking if it was going to be recorded. And um, I'm not sure my point got across. I'm hoping, honestly, that you guys both are going to record your presentations, even if it's just a practice session, I guess, um, as, just because I think a lot of people are interested in, in seeing what you have to say. And this is more more you know, opportunity for you to get your message out. Yes, but I've tried this before. When you don't really have control of the room, you do not get good quality video or audio. Um, we are going to be recording, and I just ordered a new uh, uh, camcorder that's coming tomorrow from good old Amazon. And that's just basically for our own use to to review and to see what we could do better, that kind of thing. So I, I guess the bottom line is if you really want to hear, you know, you can book me as a speaker. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll book you as a speaker in my living room. <laughs> I would do it if you paid enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah there's that big if at the end there. <clears throat> It's so like, I think like bands that do like, you know, living room concerts. It'll, yeah. you know, it'll be like that except for. Didn't exactly. you two do one of those where, where somebody paid like a gazillion dollars for like his, his daughter's, I don't know, that birthday party or something. I think that happens actually quite frequently. Yeah, yeah I think so too. So, um, so I just, I, I just on, honestly, I, I really uh, would have you consider, and it doesn't necessarily have to be the high quality video. Maybe it's just a transcript from taken from the poor quality video. I don't know. It just seems like it's such a huge opportunity for you to continue to get your message out in some interesting ways. Like you were just saying, it's something you're trying to get people to do, to think. And I know that that's going to be the topic of, of um, at least part of your speech, if not the whole thing. So just like the idea of getting the, getting the message out in as many different ways as possible. Yeah, and that's what I'm doing. I mean, I've got the weekly email newsletter. I've got the podcast. You know, the newsletter pretty much talks about the dumb things people do when it comes to thinking. And the podcast is the opposite. It's people that really do put their brain to use and come up with some really neat things. So, um, and that's called Uncommon Sense. And I'm really having fun with that too. Cool. Kevin, you've been busy. You have actually two things this week. I have week. two things that I have done or sort of planning to do or happened to me. Um, <laughs> two things happened to me, and I'm going to tell you about them. Just two? Just two. Uh, one is uh, uh, Carol Shaw, who was a, uh, a programmer at Atari back in the late 70s and early 80s. Um, I interviewed her for my podcast some time ago, and she uh, sent me this week two big pile, uh, two big uh, uh, thick printouts of a uh, fanfold green bar computer paper of source code that she had written uh, while she was at Atari. Um, and it will be my job to scan these and then I will be forwarding them on at her request to uh, the Strong Museum of Play in Rochester, New York. Cool. Uh, where would be their final resting place? The reason I have them is is she and and some other people have found that. I mean, I I, I absolutely believe that the artifacts like these need to be donated to uh, museums. And there's a variety of computer museums. Uh, the Strong Museum of Play is a great place for for games and source code and stuff like that. But kind of sometimes, often, once artifacts are in the hands of a museum, they're in the hands of the museum. And uh, it's hard for amateur historians or, you know, researchers without a lot of funds to get and look at the material before, uh, without, say, you know, going to New York and, and, and making an appointment and going down to a room where, you know, you're allowed to have a pencil and nothing else to, you know, in order to, to look at some artifact. So she sent them to me so that I can scan them 
and then send them on. So what she sent me uh, was was two programs. Um, one was um, uh, VCS Checkers, uh, so a, a checkers game for the Atari VCS or the Atari 2600. Um, and it's a complete source code with, with comments and everything, which is um, very interesting. She, uh, based on my, my cursory look at this thing, she it's the game of checkers she made uh, which utilizes the 128 bytes of RAM that this machine had was based on a learning algorithm uh, written in originally written in Lisp. Um, so she took this complicated checkers thing and <laughs> pressed it down to like a 4K game with 128 you know bytes to to work with. Um, so that's pretty amazing. And the other program is a uh, uh, called Colleen Calculator, uh, which was a calculator. Uh, program written for the Atari 400 and 800 computers. You can, in this code, you can see that it was originally, it was supposed to be, uh, it says right on it, uh, Atari calculator cartridge, copyright 1979. Well, it was released by Atari, but never as a cartridge. Uh, it was released only in disk form, so they had to make some changes there. Um, so this is an early release of the calculator. But the, I think the checkers thing is the thing that people on Twitter were super excited about because people remember playing that on their their Atari 26. I was just going to ask, did you play with that? No, I, I didn't. Some of my friends had 2600s and, uh, you know, but we, you know, we would play Pitfall or the terrible version of Pac-Man or something. I don't think we, Checkers was the go-to game <laughs> for us. <laughs> Fair so, enough. Yeah. yeah. I was a big 2600 user and I, uh, I don't remember ever playing Checkers, but I did have about a hundred cartridges. Um, of different games and yeah pitfall was probably one of my top three <laughs> yeah so you in in one of your twitter posts you have a an image of the stack the printout um mm-hmm. next to a ruler so it's basically a full inch thick actually it looks more like an inch and a quarter thick of paper yeah do you actually have something that'll scan paper that large um so my i mean there there certainly are large format scanners um available my scanner is not. Um, however, my library has a has a nice scanner that uh, will should be able to scan these sheets. It's just big enough to. Uh, so I'm going to go down to my library and spend some time there. Um, yeah, these are on the green bar fanfold computer paper, and I, in these cases, I do everything I can to not tear them apart. Right, right. Yeah, it's funny because I I started my career with that very same paper. Um, yeah. And yeah, you, you don't want to be uh, pulling that apart. Right. I mean, so it's, if you're scanning it, but you're sending the original to the museum. Are, are the scans yeah. going to end up on Internet Archive or anything like that? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's where they will go, Internet Archive. So, um, and just in case anyone ever hears this and doesn't have access to a, a, a scanner but has something similar they need to do, um, the other thing I have done and works out pretty well is to use a high-quality SLR uh, with good light to uh, just take pictures of every page, um, you know, straight down. Right. That, that I was thinking the same thing. That, that works really well for a small number of pages mm-hmm. because then you then have to manually figure out, you know, what to do with the, the images you've got and, and string them all together or do whatever. So Right. Yeah. But, yeah. So that's that. So that, that was fun. Like the fastest thing to do, really. I mean, just to take two pages at a time. And just fold the page over and snap, yeah. fold, right. snap. That is the fastest way to do it. And it's, it's easier because just like wrangling fanfold paper over a scanner. Right. Oh, yeah. That's hard. a nightmare. Yeah. It's funny because I've been um, digitizing some of my old family albums. And they are, you know, these are pictures from my, my, my parents, my grandparents, and so forth that um, were taken long before I was born. And they're all put together in, in albums, most of which fit on my um, my flatbed scanner, but some of which don't. And I'm actually going to have to set something up so that um, I'm thinking that I'll just have my, my camera with the highest DPI resolution um, on a tripod uh, sitting above some well-lit surface that uh, on which I place the, the and click one page at a time. And my other bit of news, um, this is kind of exciting, is uh, I some time ago, uh, I had, uh, months ago now, I bought a Atari book on Amazon, which turned out to be counterfeit. Um, 
it was it was a real book, but with the title and author changed and nothing else. Um, and I happened to know the author, so I reached out to him on Twitter, and it was it became a whole thing. Well, uh, yesterday in the New York Times, an article about uh, called "What Happens After Amazon's Domination Is Complete: Its Bookstore Offers Clues," and it offers uh, uh, this. Uh, article has uh, information about counterfeit books on Amazon, which includes um, uh, a couple of quotes from me and uh, two photos that I took. Very so, cool. I don't know, that was exciting. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah it was in my newsfeed this morning. I, I get their uh, daily you know, news summary and I'm mm. pretty sure it was in there. Nice. So, and then uh, today someone uh, else told me that it was, uh, they saw it in the Seattle Times. So apparently it has been you know, syndicated to uh, other. Right. I was going to say that I, I remember seeing it. I don't get any of the New York Times feeds directly, but it probably did show up in my um, emailed Seattle Times feed. So, yeah. So now I'm, a, I'm a, a accredited photographer in the New York Times. Woohoo. <laughs> I know. There's something else for the resume, assuming right. you still have a resume. I do not have a resume. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's all my news. All right. Next. Yeah, I, I got nothing. Gary? Nothing. Yeah, I figured. Yeah. You guys are still <laughs> normal week. Normal week. Getting, getting stuff done. We're too busy getting stuff done to have interesting things happen to us. Exactly. Yeah. Answering questions, <laughs> writing articles, recording videos. Anyway, also watching YouTube. So I ran across this a couple last week sometime. It, it made big news in the YouTube sphere um, and in the Tesla sphere of all places. Um, there is a YouTuber, which I guess is the... Uh, um, the, the fancy term for someone who basically publishes most of their content on YouTube, called Simone Gertz. I could be mispronouncing her last name. Yeah, it's a weird pronunciation. It's like it is, yeah. or something. I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's spelled as if you would pronounce it Gertz. Anyway, uh, she is uh, known as, and she will say this herself, the queen of shitty robots. She will. She just does these random things like, she made a robot to apply lipstick to herself a thousand times to see what the result would be. Um, <laughs> she, she made her, uh, um, oh gosh, there were just a couple of random, really bizarre kinds of things and just a lot of fun in the entire process. She's got tons and tons and tons of followers on YouTube. Anyway, a couple of months ago, she got herself a Tesla, a Model 3. And she actually uh, mentioned that at the time that she was about to take delivery of it. And I think she may have even posted some video of doing that. What she didn't say was what she was about to do to it um, over the course of uh, the next couple of months, along with help from um, other folks that she's in constant contact with. She transformed her Tesla Model 3 into a pickup truck. Now, that doesn't seem particularly significant until you realize two things. One is Elon Musk has promised a, a Tesla pickup truck for a long time. Uh, and it's unclear, as with so many of his uh, promises, exactly when that will happen. I'm sure it will happen, but there's a real question about exactly when we'll actually see a Tesla pickup truck on the road. Her comment was that she was tired of waiting, so she'd make it herself. The uh, the other thing is that Teslas are really complicated vehicles. There's a ton of electronics in there, if you you know, as as you might already know. So this was no small feat. But in the end, and there's there's like a half an hour video where she documents the process of turning this Model Three into a pickup truck. She's basically cut off the rear upper quarter of the vehicle and replaced it with a pickup truck bed, a frame, uh, some lights. Uh, it's actually, a wreck. It actually looks really good. She did a great job on this. Uh, and as I said, she had a lot of help, but she you know, ultimately she's the the mastermind, so to speak, behind this little project. And um, it's just amazing. And it's, it's really, really interesting to see everything that she had to go through to make this happen. Uh, so there's a, a half an hour video. We'll link to both of these, of course, in the show notes. But there's a half an hour video of the process from, from delivery to completion. So she, you, know, you start with picking up the brand new Tesla Model 3. And she goes through all the usual, um, oh my gosh, kind of moments when you get a new Tesla. And um, ends with this, uh, you know, Tesla pickup truck, which she ended up deciding to call Truckla. 
And uh, then there's also, I think it's either a 30 or 60 second faux commercial about Truckla. And of course, it events available nowhere. But it's a, it's a very well-produced video on selling you this truck that doesn't exist except for this one instance. I, I just thought it was, was awesome that someone went this far uh, and took on the work of turning this thing into a, uh, into a pickup truck. The one thing I haven't heard is whether or not Elon Musk has paid attention. Uh, she, of course, he has to. He ha well, so of course, he's kind of busy. We're actually recording this um, on the evening of another SpaceX launch. So I'm sure his attention is elsewhere today. But um, I'm hoping, and of course, she's tagged him and mentioned him and all that kind of stuff. But I'm hoping, I'm really hoping that at some point he comes out and says something. You know, and I watched both of the videos uh, this evening, actually. Uh, that first video, the, the making of 5.3 million views, and it only came out June 18th. And then the uh, commercial, which is actually a minute 45, it, it goes by quick, though. 4.8 million views already also posted on the 18th. So it's yeah. just phenomenal. It's incredible. It's funny because she was a very popular YouTuber. I've, I've been watching her stuff um, you know, probably for about a year now. And it's just, she's entertaining. She just has good camera presence and she's really, really matter of fact and, and, and just has a really good presentation style. Um, but clearly <laughs> this is vaulting her to another level. Yeah. The, the part that made me cringe in the, uh, in the, the making of video was when she cut the top, you know, the, the bar that goes across above the doors and the car started to, Collapse it. Yeah, just, I mean, it was just, a, you know, just the length of the cut, so like a mill or the thickness of the cut, so like a millimeter you cut, and then it closed up that gap. So in other words, the car, the, you know, was pushing, you know, had pressure on either side there, and right. then they had to immediately put it up on blocks and reinforce it because they didn't, they thought that the bottom would be enough support, but it turns out pretty much the whole frame is needed. But that was, that was the part I was like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no, that could really, that could be bad. There's batteries and everything down in there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Kind of folding I mean, up on you. This um, was one of those things. And she said that she's been planning it for like over a year, right? There's, there's yeah. been a lot of, of research gone into this to the extent that information is available about how the thing is constructed to begin with. So I'm sure it's a combination of as much research as you can do and being ready to make changes on the fly as you discover how things really put together. Yeah. And the team was really good too. Like there was that one guy who really understood the computer system there and had modified other Teslas, um, not to this extent, but just understood how to get the computer to, to be okay with things because even just, they were just modifying the body, but just taking out the rear seats, the uh, computer kind of freaked out because there were sensors in the real seat in the rear seats and it did not, have those anymore and it was like oh it's yeah something's wrong T take it into tesla for repairs <laughs> they had a community oh nothing's <laughs> wrong seats go. we meant to take the seats out so, and to be clear i'm pretty sure she voided the warranty on this one uh yeah i think <laughs> yeah really quick yeah the thing that made me really cringe was to force herself to never turn back was she keyed the trunk and wrote, you know, in big letters, truckla across the trunk because they were going to cut that off anyway. Um, and one of the neat things I think is, you know, all these pieces they cut off, they cut into key rings to give away to their Patreon supporters, which I think is really class. Yeah. Yeah. yeah she's a, she's on Patreon. That's how I, I follow her. I don't, I'm not at the level I think to get one of those keychains, but, uh, uh, yeah, she she does uh, pretty well there too. So I get the extra little bits because you see her posting stuff to YouTube, the videos, but she actually writes some articles and things and posts them to Patreon. Mm. So. Anyway, needless to say, that got my attention when that happened. And what's funny about it to me too is that it kind of came out of nowhere in the sense that I hadn't heard that there was a plan for her to do this. The fact that she was, you know, the fact that she got a Model 3, I knew about that months ago. But the fact that she was then tearing it apart and turning it into this, it just sort of appeared. And I think that contributed to it being a big deal. Right. She kept it a secret and I think it paid off. So a little marketing thing. Yeah, good thing for her. There. Yeah. Because yeah, it, 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 I was like, well, why didn't you just tell us she was doing this all along the way? But uh, it really paid off to make it a big splash that, oh, I did this and 
here's all 5.3 million views can't yeah. be wrong yeah half hour video with you know i'm sure she did pretty well with that yeah um the other thing that i was going to bring up this week um there's a again one of my pet peeves are news stories that um where the headlines if not the story them itself kind of overblows the you know the 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 risks associated with a particular vulnerability the uh the item here is that new security warning issued for google's 1.5 billion gmail and calendar users uh, out of forbes.com the issue is simply this um fishers spammers have figured out how to send you google calendar invites that's it. I mean, that really is the essence of this quote unquote security warning is that you may get calendar invites in spam. So don't, don't click them. the invites. It's very simple to deal with. It's just not the, the headline grabbing 1.5 billion people or, you know, screwed kind of, kind of implication that, that gets to me. So I just wanted to uh, uh, be clear about, again, it, go, it actually goes all the way back to what Randy was th saying to begin with. Think, even when you're reading mainstream media uh, from on, on whatever topic you choose, think before you react to these headlines because the headlines are there to get you to click, not to inform you. If they were there to inform you, they would be very boring because the bottom line information here is, in fact, very boring. It's something you already know not to do. Don't click on links in spam. It's very simple. Yep. And tell us how you really feel. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, and I, I keep seeing headlines like this over and over and over and over again. It gets, it gets frustrating. It really does. So the yeah. one thing I can do um, is, is let people know. I got an interesting email today from speaking of gmail hacks and stuff i uh I'm looking through my sorry looking through my gmail and and i get a uh email with subject line enbridge your payment is due so i I'm, i don't know what enbridge is i'm thinking okay this is this is spam or whatever it didn't get put in the spam box so i go look at it and it says uh hi david uh the due date for your bill is coming up <laughs> and there's a due date and there's you know, current outstanding balance is $131. It looks totally legit. Um, and then I look at the, at the two line. The, the two line is to uh, David so and so at gmail.com. Uh, maybe I'm, I was CC'd or something, but this looks that like I received an email from a different, uh, intended for a different Gmail box in, in my Gmail. It's really likely BCC. BCC, yeah. yeah, that's all yeah. I can think of. Yep. Yeah. It's funny because, and I, I, I mean, this just brings up the, the very common thing that I know we all face as uh, domain owners is that we're, there's this constant stream of spam uh, warning us that we're about to lose our domains or that we have this opportunity to re-register or renew our domains and it's the mm. last chance. And those come in the mail too. Yeah, uh, it's just incredible. And that's using, again, the public information that's available for domain registrations. But it's just the one that I happened to look at this morning, actually, while I was waiting for something was one that said, you know, if you don't act now, this is your last chance to get SEO optimization for your site. <laughs> last chance. <laughs> yeah, that's again. what bothers me is that if it honestly were the last chance, if they would now stop trying, that'd be great. Yeah, <laughs> but that's not how it works. They just keep banging away at it. So, so yeah, if you're a domain owner, ignore most of that mail. Ignore all of it unless it comes from your uh, specific registrar. And even then, don't click on the links in the spam. Go to your registrar and log in and see if there's anything to be dealt with. Yep, good advice. Uh -huh. So, speaking yeah. of large. Online corporations, Gary. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the story of the of the day seems to be, and really the story of the month or couple last couple of months, you know, is privacy and Facebook and other big entities. But uh, this morning, it, it seemed to be a whole new cycle of the stuff because a couple senators 
had suggested a, a privacy bill. But the interesting thing about this privacy bill is the main thing it asked for is that companies like Facebook would need to uh, provide information about how much people's accounts are worth. So in other words, tell me like your private data is worth $4.86 or something like that. Um, per month or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So, which is interesting because on the one hand, there are people saying, well, what good does that do? It's not really changing anything about privacy. It's just giving you an extra piece of information that most people are going to ignore. But it does, you know, make, I guess, gives more data to uh, to people about like what, what things are, you know, about privacy issues and, and how much money a company makes off of you. I guess the idea is that something like Facebook is supposed to be free, but privacy advocates will say, well, it's not really free. You're just paying for it in data, like private, private data about yourself instead of in cash. And that has a monetary value. And there are actually companies that kind of estimate the monetary value of that. So, you know, if it's $6 a month worth of private data, because that's how much it's worth for them to sell advertising to show up on your Facebook page, then you're paying, you're, you're basically, it's a $6 value is what you're giving them. And so I guess it's interesting. I don't know if that's going to go anywhere. That bill also has a lot of just general privacy stuff that people have been talking about. Um, but it does bring up some interesting things. Yeah, I would just pay $6 a month for you not well, to sell my data. And- well, that's, that's actually one of the things. I mean, you know, people have said this for a long time. It's like, why isn't there a Facebook option to say pay a certain amount per month and I don't see any ads on Facebook ever. I just pay per month. And of course, there isn't an option for that. There's no option for that on almost any service. But the only exception I could think of is YouTube. YouTube does have YouTube Premium. It used to be called YouTube Red. And you could actually pay, I think it's $11 a month, and you won't see ads on YouTube anymore. So that's the only kind of social media type of thing where that's the case. I don't know what the deal is with that, like why companies like Facebook don't investigate that more. Um, you know, I don't know, maybe they're under pressure from advertisers. I mean, even so if everybody paid for it, I'm wondering if advertisers would still be like, well, we still want to get our products out there to people. So they would just look for new ways to invade our privacy anyway. Uh, You know, even if we were paying for ad-free Facebook. I don't know if I would trust Facebook to keep my information private. Like I could see if they're ads, you know, okay, I paid this money, better not be any ads. Okay, there are no ads. But I'd still be like, well, but is my data private? I mean, just because I'm not seeing ads doesn't mean Facebook isn't using my data for other things. Right. Uh, I, I tend to agree. I'm not sure that I would trust Facebook at this point. And to be honest, I don't know that it's just about the money for them. I think you're right. I think that it's the advertisers. If, they, if Facebook offered this, advertisers would have a cow because they would be denied access to some segment of the audience. Yeah. And that's just something, yeah, that's just something <laughs> they wouldn't be able to live with. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it would be a certain, I mean, I don't know. My experience with like, you know, the uh, putting in apps a little thing where you can turn off advertising for 99 cents or something like that, not many people take the offer, right? So I don't, I think if Facebook did this, they would end up with a very small percentage. I'm guessing less than 5%, maybe even less than 2% of people would take up like a $6 a month subscription to not see ads. If, if it were just about ads, yeah. I agree. I, I tend to agree. Now, and, and you do this, and, and I, I do it as well, where you can buy, you know, you can support Ask Leo. Yeah. By, and, and as a result, if you're logged in, you don't see ads on the website. Um, but that isn't necessarily selling the lack of ads, although that's a benefit. It's really positioned as supporting Ask Leo, supporting what I do. I don't think people are interested in supporting Facebook. Facebook has all the support. <laughs> well, yeah, but you're getting, but you're getting some, I mean, it's not so much you feel like you want to support Facebook, but it's like, I'm getting value out of Facebook and I want to uh, continue getting that value, but I just don't want the ads. I don't want the privacy stuff. It's the privacy it. stuff, though, that I think people are, are people are more concerned about. I mean, it's let's not face, just ads at all. No, it's just like, yeah. stop tracking me when I ever everywhere I go with my phone and and right. stop. Yeah, all that. 
Right. Yeah, yeah there are ways to get rid of ads, right? I mean, if you th- install something like Social Fixer or uh, I forget the other one, uh, Fluff Busting Purity, I think it's called. The, um, <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's Facebook Purity. Yeah, the, it, it was FB Purity. They used to be Facebook Purity, <laughs> and they couldn't. They, they got called on the carpet for using the Facebook name. Mm. So it's Fluff Busting Purity. Nice. Anyway, point being, though, that those extensions, browser extensions, will actually get rid of the, the majority of the ads you see. Um, Except not not mobile though, but that's, not on mobile. I agree yeah. that that's a big. That's, that's where a, a lot of uh, I think a majority of the users are. Even that ads, I think people for the most part they're ad blind. So in so many different ways, um, especially if the ads are clearly ads, and those are the kinds of ads that will get removed. Um, it's it's the privacy thing. It's what Kevin was saying. It's 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 way more about it's more about way more than just ads. It's about the privacy thing. It's about not using my data. It's about not tracking me across the internet. And I don't know if they're, if they can put a number on that. And even if they did, I'm not sure that people would pay for it. Well, well the, the number, if people did pay for it, would they trust it? Well, the number they did put on it, there's another article we'll link to. Yeah, I was just going to bring that up. Ca- they actually calculate. So, so far as I can tell, as far as everybody can tell, the whole idea of tracking this and violating your privacy is all about advertising money. I mean, there's nothing else for them to do with it. It really is about selling ads. And that's how Facebook makes its money and Google and other companies. So a company took the total ad market and figured out like how many users there are and market share and all that stuff and calculated that basically uh, everybody on average is worth $35 a month. So, you know, it's like something like $116 billion in advertising revenue to these companies. And, and the, the biggest one they said that I think the biggest would be Google, uh, you know, the, uh, share of that. And Facebook's what's I think six dollars or something out of that 30, ten bucks. Yeah, ten bucks. And, and that's Fox Recode. And and I have a lot of problems with their calculations. I mean, yeah. first of all, this is only U.S. citizens and Canadians because, as we know, Europeans don't see ads. Um, it's <laughs> like, come on. But the thing is, they said, you know, they they took this budget of how much Google and, and Facebook makes and they divided it by something like 450 million people as if everybody's online all the time uh, and came up with that $35. And here's what they say. Google would presumably get a bigger piece since it controls more digital ad revenue than any other company, but um, the rest would be dispersed among other ad behemoths and maybe there would be some pennies left over for news publications. Well, it's like, come on. Google doesn't keep all the money that they make. It's called gross. And they have to pay out for all these sites that are showing those ads. That's what makes a lot of these these sites work is they get this income from Google ads. Facebook doesn't have that problem. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and what we really need is a micropayment system so that people can, you know, give a few pennies to read an article, not a dollar ninety nine to read an article, but there's no function that's available for someone to pay two cents without having you know thirty five cents in processing fees. I was going to say the, the the problem with that is that it today costs more than two cents to take a payment for two cents. Absolutely, um, and it's unclear that that could ever be otherwise. There's a threshold, right? There's a point. well. I think Google could do it if they really wanted to. That. Well, they are doing it in YouTube again. Not only do you, yep. they have that system, you pay for premium and they actually, so you pay your $11 a month and they'll actually divide it up based on what videos you're seeing. So I see a small amount, a few dollars a month from people that are paying the premium and watching my videos. So without you know, ads. Yeah, without ads. So there's, so there's that. Um, I also thought, you know, uh, the whole idea before all this tracking stuff and we're all, we're all around long enough to remember what it was like before tracking, right? When there was no, there were no privacy issues. Ads existed and they were interest-based based on the topic of the page. So for instance, if you had a travel website, an airline may advertise their fares on the travel website thinking, well, the, the topic fits what we're doing. Somebody's reading an article about traveling to Europe. We can show them cheap fares to Europe. And we don't need to know anything about the individuals that are coming to the site. We just know that the content fits what we've got. And that worked before, but what happened was 
companies tried to get an edge, right? Oh, we could do a little bit better. We could shave a little bit off the the, the cost here or, or target our ads a little bit better if we only were able, you know, targeting users that were like this, that had these properties, you know, that had searched previously for flights, all this stuff. So, you know, it's, it, it's kind of a zero-sum type of thing here. The advertisers have a certain amount of money to spend and they have a certain amount of product they need to sell. And if everybody is using interest-based advertising with no privacy issues, they may need to actually put more ads up. Like you may need, if you want to get a thousand people clicking on your ad, you may need to put a hundred thousand ads up on pages that make sense. Whereas with targeting and the privacy issues, maybe you could go down to half that and still get a thousand. But in the end, you'll still be spending the same amount of money because you're you know, buying those clicks. But the problem with that is, is that if everybody went and said, okay, no more privacy issues, Everybody just put ads on web pages that make sense for the topic that you're advertising for. Then there would be one company that would say, oh, but we could get a step ahead of everybody if we just knew a little bit of information about the people and you end up back where we are now. You guys agree or disagree with that? Yeah, there's always going to be some a-hole who's going to try to be a little bit, do a little bit more, or be a little bit shady and then, then it's a race to the bottom. Right, yeah, and we're that's where we're at. Right it's a now. race to the, the bottom, bottom, or it's it's a race to the limits of what our technology can allow us to do, whether that's the bottom or it's just an extreme, you know, vision of of what we have. I mean, you know, the fact that you know people visit certain websites, in the you know the is that a privacy issue or not? Is it data that can be used? To or correctly at target advertising? Of course it is. It's, I don't know. It's, it's like I said, I think it's more limited by technology than it is uh, people's ethics. Right. And now there was one last uh, facet of the story today is I saw one news station this morning. Uh, somebody was talking about the fact that surveys show that consumers are caring less about privacy. So the privacy kind you know, people being outraged about privacy people that aren't us and probably aren't our listeners, um, it seems to have gotten to the top and then now it's falling off, which is kind of scary because it's that outrage, it's the general population outrage over privacy that is fueling all this. If that kind of goes away, then, you know, it's over. They could just... This, this is something I've struggled with for a long time. And it's something that I've talked about on several of my articles. Tracking privacy, et cetera, that related specifically to advertising, I honestly don't care. I really don't care that they're using my, my website visiting history, uh, my activities that, that I've made available to them by the fact that I have a Facebook account and, and, I know, and I know that there are Facebook tracking pixels out there or the searches that I do or whatever. I just don't care. It's not impacting me in any negative way that I'm aware of that, um, th that would cause me to, to be concerned. In fact, if anything, it's kind of, sort of benefiting me in the sense that the, adver the advertisements that I do see, yeah, they're sometimes kind of applicable to the things I'm interested in and actually are things that I care about. I think now, I've that, never clicked on an ad that you know was a result of something I searched for, and then they showed me an ad for it. I've never clicked on that ad and gone and bought bought it. I've, <laughs> Usually, I've already bought it, and they're still showing me ads for it. So th there's there's two scenarios here. Um, I'm absolutely convinced that I have certainly clicked on an ad uh, because of a search that I did, but I've also explicitly clicked on an ad because I know that I'm going to this site anyway and i want them to pay for the click <laughs> right if i go to their site they don't pay for the click but if i go through the ad they have to pay for the click i don't know oh, i do the opposite i actually do the opposite like i'll see at the top of the search result you know that i'll search for something and be like oh that's what i want and right. the top one says sponsored and it's a link to the site and then i see further down the page is the search result that's a regular organic link and right. I'll be like, well, I'm doing business with this company. I, I want one of their products or some information that they have. I'm right. not going to, you know, 
uh, click on that and make them pay for yeah, it. And to be fair, in my case, yep. it, and I do the same thing. It, to be uh, to be fair, in my case, it, it's it's also a function of how I happen to feel about that particular company. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, You're begrudgingly buying from them. I, I, yeah, there's scenarios. I guess it could be, I guess it could be a way to get revenge. Like every time, like I do no, no business at all with our uh, cable company, which would be Comcast. No business. I have no, not even a cable attached to the house. It's just not how, not how I get my TV or my internet. Yet I continue to get junk mail from them every day. Um, maybe what I should do is every time I receive a piece of junk mail, search for them and then click on the first ad at the top. Just once. That's it. <laughs> it's just like, that's it. It's going to cost you a penny. Every time you send me a piece of junk mail. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. Um, But anyway, so I think that the average consumer is probably over time going to become um, kind of immune to this. It's kind of like ad blindness in general, right? We're already facing a situation where a lot of people don't see ads, even the ads that are right there in front of them. And I think that a lot of people are going to stop seeing the concerns or the the the, the, the trends that that raise this privacy concern. I think they're just not going to care until the day that something happens, right? And that's for a small percentage of consumers where something negatively impacts them that is at least suspected to be a result of this kind of privacy invasion. That's when people will care. But because it's only going to be a small number of people compared to the, the entire advertising populace, I don't know that it's going to be enough. That's already to- happened. The Cambridge Analytica hack. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Were you affected by that? Probably. How? Everyone was. Do you care? Uh, there's been, I do care, but there's nothing I can do about it. But it doesn't mean I don't care. So the question, my question is, how specifically have you been negatively impacted by that? Like there have been, you've gone to, uh, uh, have I been pwned, right? And and you know how many times you personally, Leo, have lost data. How can that not bother you? Not that there's anything. I've never, I've never, never lost data. Or, I mean, I'm sorry, lot, had had data leaked. Not you. You still have it, but some also so does someone else. I've well, okay. If but, not but even, that, even the, data that's, the data that's been leaked, again, has not impacted me negatively in any way to this date, to the, to the extent that I'm aware of. And that's where I believe most consumers are. Well, okay, so I'm, I'm on Kevin's side here, but in terms of not, not so much the, the privacy part of Cambridge Analytica, but the fact that they use that to serve up advertisements, right? They use that to target politically. And I still see, and uh, back when this was happening, I definitely saw ads that were politically charged, dumb ads that I right away, I you know, would be just asking dumb little poll questions or making some sort of false claim, uh, you know, politically. And when I see those ads and I would see them on either websites or maybe while on Facebook, um, it, it generates an, a response. I mean, I don't want it to, I wish I'd never saw those ads, but it wasted energy on my part, even if it was just emotional energy for half a second. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, that's what they did a lot of, right. Was they put a lot of inflammatory ads. Sowing discord. Sowing discord. Exactly. And, and they sowed discord right here in like in my mind. I mean, right. I was very like, I would see an ad and say, Oh, I can't believe that. And you know, or why would somebody, advertise that why would they say that you know that kind of thing and some of those ads we now know were paid for Mm -hmm. through foreign governments um trying to influence Mm -hmm. things facebook exposed data on 87 million facebook users so chances are gary you and i and everyone listening to this were affected even if it was an ad that made you go well i oh yeah exactly i mean that's but i I don't know and that it makes me it makes me mad that 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 that, that happens because, you know, emotional responses aren't necessarily something we can't all be stoic and we can't all just look at things and say, these are just words and pixels on the screen and they mean nothing to me. No, you see stuff and those were emotionally charged ads. They were meant to create a reaction the same way advertising your products tries to, you know, uh, stimulate, you know, the idea that you want this product or this might be useful to you or I'd like to have that. You know, it seems like an attractive brand or style. 
but in these ads were trying to, you know, sometimes try the difference between real political ads and these ads was real political ads are trying to convince you to vote for somebody or for an issue, right? Or against somebody or against an issue. These were like, as Kevin said, trying to sow discord. They didn't care. They didn't care that they, those ads were not going to change my mind about something or change my vote. They just wanted me to make me mad. You know, they want to make me mad. So the next time I'm talking to a neighbor about that, maybe I, I'm, I'm just not as coherent or not as, you know, uh, able to express myself as I can. And that's what, that's what they're trying to do quite clearly. Yeah. So, so I, mean, I, I used to, I, go ahead, go ahead. All right, I'll you go. Guys, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go. I used to see these, these ads that say, you know, should Obama be impeached? Now I'm seeing, yeah. should Trump be impeached? It's like, I don't care if it is a legitimate poll, and it almost certainly isn't. I'm not going to weigh in on it because I don't care. I don't want somebody to, to get my click on that. And all it is is to stir up crap. And, I, you know, I know that it's foreign governments behind it. And I don't want to support that in any way. So to go all the way back to the initial concern about the average consumer, the average person, isn't going to think about any of this, right? That's why they're not going to be concerned. They they're will just they going, think. They're just going to either ignore that particular, like using that as an example, they're going to ignore that should Obama be impeached kind of thing or should Trump be impeached kind of thing. Or they're going to vote and they're going to vote hard, right? <laughs> right? Because that's <laughs> not one of those, of those issues where people are kind of, wishy-washy on. They feel very strongly one way or the other. And that's exactly what the advertisers are caring about or the, the, the people posting these things care about. Boy, and I wish we had time because that, that leads into something I did want to talk about, but we're, we're kind of out of time for that. Uh, maybe we can pick that up next week about exactly these kinds of things. <laughs> so, yeah, and where the future, death, yeah, yeah, where the future, because where is this going from here is, is kind of interesting. And, and so just to sum up where I'm at is that I don't think consumers, the average consumers know enough to care. And that's why they're not going to be railing against Facebook en masse. They all have this undercurrent of, yeah, we should be pissed at Facebook about privacy or we should be pissed at Google about privacy. But they're all using Facebook and Google because the value that they get out of those, uh, those topics or those services right. is so valuable. But, but, should, but shouldn't we be concerned that they are not concerned? Because Absolutely. these things are not trying to they're, – they're only effective at influencing our emotions, not our votes. But that is not true of when you talk about 300 million people. You, know, you can sway a large group of people on an issue or a candidate or anything. And so the fact that there are millions of people not concerned about the ads they see on Facebook – troubles me and there's not much I can do about it because <laughs> I, all I can do is care about how I'm, I'm influenced by them. I'm, I'm going to claim that you and I and Randy, of course, and maybe Kevin, if there's a free printable opportunity here, um, <laughs> um, have, have a platform where we can at least begin to um, raise people's awareness of these issues. So and to be honest, or something. I think most of us have kind of sort of done that. Um, Randy's built a business around it. Um, you know, I have the occasional post on it. One happened to run today. Um, it's, it's one of those things where uh, we're in an interesting position in that we have a platform and we have an audience and we have at least a few people that will listen by hopefully getting those people to listen. Maybe we can spread a message. Good place to wrap up on that one. Yep. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I noticed in the news today that um, my old alma mater, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, has been hacked, which, you know, it's like, well, what else is new? But I thought the vector was kind of interesting. There was a, quote, unauthorized Raspberry Pi computer on JPL's network, which was targeted, and then they were able to move laterally further into the network. And the interesting part for me was that Johnson Space Center noticed the intruder 
and disconnected from the network so that they couldn't get in and perhaps send any kind of commands up to the space station. So I, I think the bottom line is that, you know, NASA has always been a target of script kitties and, and white hat and black hat hackers all along. So why doesn't JPL have a better security force there to watch over things? And one of the things they got slapped for was they didn't have a 24-hour monitoring system where the, where if somebody noticed something, they could report it, you know, nine to fivers apparently. So I just thought it was kind of an interesting article. This one was in Forbes again. We'll link to it on the on the show page. I'm not sure what the lesson is from this, but certainly they know that they're a very high priority uh, target. And the the funny thing about it was, it's not like we can, um, you know, just disconnect Russia from the network since, hey, they're part. There are partners in the space. <laughs> Yeah, the um, um, the lesson to me is that if you've got a high-value target, if you are a high-value asset, you might want to consider investing in some high-value security. Exactly. So, um, so you also have listed here, and I mentioned it earlier, that SpaceX is launching their Falcon Heavy tonight. Um, yes, uh, their, their launch window opens at 11 p.m. Eastern time. I will be watching because that's only 9.30 my time. Uh, it goes, you know, there's a multi-hour launch window there. The thing I really enjoyed was looking at the picture of the Falcon Heavy on the launch pad and the boosters on the side are just all sketchy and, and dirty and, you know, flame roasted and all this stuff. It looks like because they're reusing <laughs> these boosters. And I think that's just fantastic that they're yep. they're saving millions and millions and millions of dollars not only to make more for themselves, but, you know, the taxpayers save a lot of money with, with much cheaper launches because they're doing this. And I just think that's fantastic. It's, it's one of the, uh, the initial propositions of SpaceX is that they were going to reuse things. And it's interesting to me, much like Tesla, I've often said that if you know, Tesla could fail today, they've already accomplished something very important. And that is that you're seeing electric cars all over the place. You know, the, the, the movement has started. I think yeah. the same thing is true for SpaceX. We've shown, you know, they've shown that you can reuse components, big components, again and again. Yeah. And now other people are are starting to be able to do the same, or starting to consider doing the same. So that's looking at the the picture uh, that you talk about, Randy. I love it because you know I grew up in the you know, Star Wars, right? Those spaceships were all dirty and scarred, yeah. and, and all that <laughs> stuff. And then you know we we get space shuttles that are painted like white. And stuff. This is like this is cool looking. I mean, this looks like yeah, you you know, a spaceship. Oh, look, there's R two D two hanging off the side. Yeah, said flame roasty. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> flame roasted. Absolutely. So uh, you can stream that from SpaceX.com starting at eleven thirty tonight. And the one last thing, uh, speaking of space, Fast Company has been doing a really good series. They're doing an article a day for 50 days for the 50th anniversary of the Apollo moon landing. Um, I, I don't have the guy's name right on the top of my head that is writing these. He wrote a book about the Apollo missions. He's not a space expert. He's just a journalist who went out and researched this really, really well. He's got a book out. And meanwhile, he's been a fast company c contributor since the beginning and is doing these articles, they're really, really good. They're, they're short reads, like five-minute reads, each one of them. Um, and I will link to the, uh, to the homepage of that because those articles are really neat. One of the ones I really liked was um, for, the NASA, uh, for the Apollo missions, NASA had to build the first worldwide digital network to send all the data that's coming back from the moon around you know, all these different tracking stations. So if only Australia can see the moon at this moment, they use a tracking station in Australia to get the, the uh, video down from the Apollo missions, which is what happened when Apollo 11 landed on the moon. And they had to get that data somehow brought back to the United States and then uh, spread out to the network so they could put it on TV. And they did that in 1966 or something like that. I mean, that's, big deal for back then. 
Yep. So it's just really interesting articles. Is there is one of these articles, there, there was one I was reading, and I'm not sure if it's the same series, where um, they are explaining a lot about how the lunar module uh, landed. And they're actually going to end with the last, I think, 11 minutes of real-time audio from the original landing of Apollo 11, uh, which I thought was very, very interesting because that was no small feat, obviously. And uh, just listening to it with the additional understanding of what it meant in the 50 years since and what it took to have happen back then uh, gives you a completely different perspective. Yeah, and there's, for instance, there's an article about the landing computer and what a absolute amazing leap forward that was um you know how draper labs figured out how to do navigation even if they couldn't talk to earth they knew where they were right which is just phenomenal so just really neat articles and it's absolutely worth reading these things we'll link to that all righty well that seems like a great place to wrap it up we've got lots of things to link to and point people at um, any other final comments from you guys? Nope. Hey, it was fun sitting in again. Hey, yeah. it's good. Good to have you back. Hope you yeah. can do it again soon. Here and there, I'll be able to. The show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash th73. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at the TEH Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we will see you again here next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Later. Thank you.